So we're presenting the Israel Lobby Con Extra. I'm Delinda Hanley from the Washington Report, a co-organizer of this annual conference. And Grant Smith is the co-narrator, co-organizer here from IRMEP. And he's backing us up in case we lose connections and reading answers, um, I mean, reading viewers' questions. This online series, which we call Extra, does not replace our annual National Press Club Conference scheduled for March 5th, 2021. But until we reconvene at the National Press Club, welcome to Extra. So today we have with us um, to talk about American Jews and Israel, a faltering relationship, Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb and Alan Brownfeld. I'm gonna just uh, read a description of each person and then we'll get right to some really good questions. Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb is an organizer with Jewish Voice for Peace, and she'll describe Jewish Zionism as a failing ideology for many younger American Jews who reject Israel's oppressive occupation policies and bellicose actions toward Iran, as well as the relationship between US and Israeli militarism. But how will this impact their future as activists in electoral politics? Will they remain mostly captive to the Democratic Party, voicing opposition while accepting candidates captured and mentored by APEC? And then we have Alan Brownfeld from the American Council for Judaism, who will discuss the growing disillusionment of American Jews and some Israelis with the Jewish state and Zionism. Young American Jews who champion civil rights at home, including the right to vote, freedom of movement, due process and equality, realize that Israel is denying those same basic rights to Palestinians. Peter Beinhart, Seth Rogen, Mark Moran, and other Jewish Americans are urging Israel to dismantle its apartheid policies. Um, and they're, but they're facing bitter attacks from the Israel lobby and Jewish establishment organizations, charging that they've crossed the line Brownfeld will offer some suggestions about how progressive Jewish voters can influence both the Democratic and Republican parties. So my first question is kind of a, um, roughly 2% of Americans are Jewish. Approximately one third of Jewish American voters are Republicans. Some Jewish Republicans couldn't vote for Trump in 2016. Will they this year? In 2016, 70% of Jewish Americans voted for Hillary Clinton, but some young Jewish progressives basically stayed home, disappointed that Bernie Sanders wasn't the candidate. There may be some undecided Jewish voters out there listening to this webinar. And I'd like to think there are some aides or even members of Congress who are running for office who are also listening. What are the issues that mattered most to Jewish voters 20 years ago? versus what matters most to them today. So Rabbi Lynn, would you, would you like to start with, how did you first get involved in the Israel-Palestine issue and how have your views changed? And, and can you explain the Jewish value of Tikkun Olam, world repair? How does this value stand up in the voting booth? Do Jewish Americans choose candidates based on domestic issues or because they support Israel? It's all yours. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be here and to discuss this, this very important issue of this, especially in this moment of tremendous change. Before I talk about my own involvement or as I talk about my own involvement, I want to acknowledge uh, that I am in Berkeley, California on Ohlone land. Um, and I want to acknowledge Turtle Island indigenous name of North America. Um, I want to open this conversation in deep recognition of indigenous people in this country who have always informed my understanding of this issue, as well as um, black Americans who carry the burden of US anti-blackness that impacts every dimension of US institutions including policing and incarceration. And so when I first traveled to Israel as part of 
the reform movement's effort in 1966 to uh, create an ideological form or uh, a format for young Jewish people to become Zionists. I was deeply involved at that time as a young person in the civil rights movement. And it allowed me to make the immediate comparison of Israeli racism, the use of militarism, the apartheid and segregated nature of that society and led me immediately into Palestine solidarity work both of the communities of black Americans and indigenous Americans profoundly impact the way I always think about my involvement and continue to think about my involvement in the context of solidarity. What will be the first question that you ask me? So Alan, you have to mute yourself if you're gonna talk. <laughs> so. She's talking now. I, I see. <laughs> so- hey, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi yeah. Lynn, yeah, yeah uh, while she's getting his audio fixed, I just wanted to ask, I think this was a bit of a follow-up question. Sure. That what, really, what are the issues that mattered most to Jewish voters 20 years ago versus what matters to them today? I am not a voting expert, so let me say that. Yeah. But in my own reading and research, it seems like the, the things that matter are fairly stable up to this moment, which I think we have to acknowledge is a sea change. All the polling suggests that Jewish voters like other uh, American voters are principally concerned with domestic issues. Jewish voters have always voted most, have more, more than any other group in the United States, except for black Americans have voted democratic. Right. Yeah. Um, with with liberal concerns around immigration, healthcare, and economics, those those are are basic. The Israel factor comes in when usually when candidates when Jewish voters have to decide between progressive candidates, mm -hmm. and that may influence how they're voted in how they're voting. But in addition, who they get to vote for. Um, is obviously influenced by the Israel lobby that impacts the Jewish community. And therefore, for <coughs> progressive Jewish voters, especially now, we can see a change at, for instance, in the voting of Ed Merkley, who, Ed Markley in Massachusetts, who was helped by the Sunrise Movement, um, which is young voters who are interested in climate change over a Kennedy in Massachusetts, and he is 74 years old. So we, we see, and also with Bernie Sanders, we see that younger voters are more progressive in their choices. And I believe that will continue to be a change and will <coughs> and will keep pushing the Jewish establishment more than it has in the past. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so let's just follow up on that a little bit while Delinda uh, helps Alan out with his audio. Uh, if one in three Jewish voters are now Republicans, can Donald Trump count on a larger Jewish vote this time due to his moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing the Golan Heights as Israeli, his deal of the century, and now the Abrahamic agreement between Jerusalem and Abu Dhabi? Or has the Republican Party become more evangelical Christian, and is that it? What's your What's your feeling for that? Honestly, in the research I did, before, you know, when I saw that question, I could not find the the factoid that said one third of Jews are Republicans. Well, that's why we're I, asking. I, what? I well, we didn't make that up. We didn't make that up. I know, but I, I couldn't <laughs> find it. I looked at Pew. I looked at you know Jewish yeah. reporting. I just couldn't find it. It, it okay. seems actually that it's more. Let's just like, say, let's say assuming. Let's just, it's not an assumption. Give it, I cannot okay. assume. But let me <laughs> let me say this: um, the the rise of of the Christian Evangelical Party, represented by Kufi and uh, yeah. the, the white supremacist and deeply anti-Semitic nature of the Trump administration is going to drive even Republicans <laughs> uh, and, Jew and some Jewish Republicans uh, 
back to Joe Biden. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. for those of us who are progressive yeah. uh, and, and are wanting a more radical and transformative approach, even though we have to vote for Biden because we cannot have another Trump uh, presidency, yeah. we believe like the last time, the failure to address a more progressive stance around Israel um, is just not healthy for anyone. It's, it's because this alliance is deeply rooted in the militaristic approach that, uh, and the colonial approach that America has throughout the world. And it is driving climate chaos. It's driving racism. It's driving anti-Semitism. It's driving Islamophobia. It's driving homophobia. It's it's driving impoverishment, um, yeah. incarceration, etc. So I think um, the Jewish community. You will see the Jewish community become more radicalized. I see it now, and the big crossing point will be whether, as the as people of color become more international in their approach and more, uh, as we see on the streets of the United States, more insistent in their demand for change, the liberal Jewish establishment and the Jewish lobby will will have to reckon with uh, this change in younger voters and some older voters, obviously. And, and I think that is going to continue to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of segues into another question because the lobby has kind of uh, these hot button issues that it puts out there that can either maybe fracture the uh, people they're trying to communicate with or bring them together. So what what can you tell us about, um, you know, not just the pro-Israel lobby's views on the BDS movement, but maybe even... Um, juxtapose that with progressive uh, Jewish views. How, how does that differ, um, you know, the Jewish voice for peace and other progressive versus sort of this constant fear and always having BDS on the radar of the establishment groups? Yes, and, and other things as well, even mentioning um, the ADL, for instance. Uh, right. it, it, or, and, and pointing out their deadly exchange program, um, or speaking about the Nakba, the, the ongoing catastrophe. There are many trigger issues that groups that pretend actually, or, or, or put themselves forward as being liberal, such as Jewish community relations councils, um, so-called uh, progressive rabbis, falter over this issue. They falter over this issue. And that is so unfortunate. What I see, obviously the BDS is the only alternative effort of struggle, one of the only alternative, and the main effort of struggle based on the South African model uh, to change policy. And it is international in its nature. Mm-hmm. It is highly successful. It has captured the imagination of Jewish Voice for Peace members who actually have a larger Facebook presence and enrollment than APAC does. So I, I've seen that too. <laughs> yeah. well, so what, what do you what do you attribute that to? I mean, I is it just lack of excitement and sort of well, that's they're talking I, about I, the past. I attribute that to yeah. young people having grown up feeling lied to. I think Seth Rogen actually articulated that very well. Um, anyone with eyes, anyone who has traveled to Israel and gotten a little outside the bubble of birthright can see the occupation. And then if they are somewhat progressive in their American domestic policy, they can't help but make the um, comparison, even though these Mm -hmm. are different uh, experiences, uh, they can't help but make the comparison. You cannot go through that wall, the apartheid wall, and not understand what's happening. Yeah. You just can't, you have to be, um, you have to be intentionally misdirected 
you have to be in pretty deep denial. <laughs> so yeah. therefore, and also I think younger Jews have accepted this principle, which has always been part of my organizing, that if you want to strategize for change, you have to recognize and define, have an analysis of a systemic violence. And that comes from people most directly impacted by systemic violence. And therefore, when Palestinians call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, a nonviolent tactic to, that targets corporations and, um, and the military and states that are profiting profiting from oppression, that appeals to them. It appeals to them because it's also what they see happening here as they organize directed by, for instance, Black Lives Matter. So we are seeing a sea change. It, it, is, it is, and now with climate change <laughs> impacting everyone, there is no really place anymore for denial. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think we've got some audio support in Studio B over there now. Yep. Okay, <laughs> okay. I'm, so, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask yeah. Alan Brownfelt some questions. Um, he's sitting here beside me, not socially distant at all. Um, <laughs> so, how did you first get involved in this issue? And can you describe the history of the American Council for Judaism and its newsletter issues? And also, I, I think. Um, Rabbi Lynn talked about the Seth Rogen interview, and can you recap your article in Issues and the latest Washington report um, about Peter Beinhart and Seth Rogen reflecting Jewish disillusionment with Israel? Yes, well, thank you very much, Belinda. I, I have been involved with the American Council for Judaism ever since I was in high school. This began when visiting my synagogue, I observed an Israeli flag on the pulpit. And I said, why is an Israeli flag on the pulpit of the synagogue? Are we not Americans? Then I tried to find out if there was a Jewish view that differed from that. And in the days before the internet, somehow I discovered the American Council for Judaism. The council's philosophy really stems from the original reform Jewish view. The council argued that Judaism is a religion of universal values, not a nationality. Americans of the Jewish faith are Americans by nationality and Jews by religion, just as other Americans are Catholics, Protestants, or Muslims. Religion and nationality were separate and distinct. Zionism, on the other hand, argues that Israel is the homeland of all Jews and Jews living outside of Israel are in exile and their major obligation is to move to Israel. But this has never been the view of American Jews. The people that created Zionism were Eastern European Jews who had almost no knowledge of America. In America, we have had religious freedom from the very start of the country. In the much discussed letter George Washington wrote to the Jewish congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, in America to bigotry, we give no sanction. In 1841, the first reformed Jewish synagogue was dedicated in Charleston, South Carolina. The rabbi declared, this country is our Palestine. This city is our Jerusalem. So the American Council for Judaism really represents the traditional American Jewish view that religion and nationality are separate and distinct. In 1885, reform rabbis gathered in Pittsburgh, people who later formed the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, 
the Reformed Jewish Organization, declared opposition to all forms of nationality and nationalism. They said Judaism is a religion. So this is how I became originally involved in the council. The council was started in 1942 at a time when many reformed Jews had become sympathetic to Zionism. The council wanted to maintain the older reformed Jewish idea and it has maintained it ever since 1942. And we have lived long enough to see large numbers of American Jews, particularly in the younger generation, rejecting the Zionist idea. And it's important to remember why Zionism had appeal to Americans. It was only after the Holocaust, when Jews were under attack in Europe, that the feeling grew that Jews needed a safe place to go. When you talked about Seth Rogen, yes. the most interesting statement Seth Rogen made, and Seth Rogen grew up in Canada, attended Jewish schools and Jewish camps. And he said, we were lied to in the Jewish schools. We were told that Palestine was an empty country when Jews arrived. No one told us it was already completely occupied by other people, that we coming there replaced an indigenous population. And you mentioned Peter Beinhardt. Peter Beinhardt, who is now an editor of the Jewish Currents magazine, stirred great controversy with an article in the New York Times in which he advocated one state rather than the so-called two-state solution. He said, in effect, this two-state solution can never take place because Israel has already occupied the land that would be a Palestinian state. And I must just tell you one personal thing that the term apartheid has significant meaning to me because for many years, I was the correspondent in Washington for a group of newspapers in South Africa. And I visited South Africa frequently. So I know exactly what apartheid was like. And I give the South African Afrikaner community high marks for abandoning it. My South African friends used to say to me, we could control South Africa indefinitely, 5 million white people controlling 20 million black people. But in order to do so, we would have to become a totalitarian society and our children will leave. They said, we are Christian people who believe in freedom. Apartheid violates our basic principles. We're going to take a chance and abandon it and hope for the best. And of course, they were lucky to have Nelson Mandela on hand to turn it over to. So the apartheid we see in Israel is reminiscent of the apartheid I saw on my many visits to South Africa. It's even more extreme. When I was in college, I wrote a weekly column for the school paper. This was at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. I wrote a satirical column saying that in order for us to achieve full employment in Virginia, we should have segregated roads for white and black drivers that will employ large numbers of people. Imagine in Israel, there now are separate roads for Jews and Palestinians. Who would have thought that we would live long enough to see such a thing. So that's my perspective and that's sort of how I got to where, where we are today. I think that's a good segue um, into another question for both of you. 
There is strong support now for conditioning American aid to Israel, Israeli behavior, including ending the occupation, settlement building, and ditching annexation plans. Is there any hope that more politicians, like members of the squad, will call for a balanced foreign policy? Do you, Lynn, do you want to take that first? Oh, you're muted. Yes, I mean, there, there is always hope, uh, as um, Palestinian friends say, it means, however, that there is a lot of ongoing education that we have to continue to do, to work on. And the Jewish community, like the rest of the United States, um, especially the white Ashkenazi Jewish community, uh, has to begin to shift from trying to solve the problem itself to taking the leadership and direction of people most directly impacted by the violence. Therefore, supporting the squad as it were, supporting uh, progressive candidates that have a clear idea of what this means has to become our objective. And indeed, Jewish Voice for Peace has started to work in that way. And we are a trendsetter and I believe that will continue to happen, but we kind of have to cross the Rubicon and break our hearts and acknowledge the, not just acknowledge, but have a series of truth telling events in which Palestinians and Jews of color, Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews that are in solidarity with each other, begin to speak about their experience so that uh, American Jewish uh, the American Jewish community and others can hear the depth of those stories. That kind of truth telling was critical in the transformation of uh, South African policy. In addition, we have to get a grip on the money issues <laughs> because the m money silences candidates. Uh, they, they are not willing, they feel they're not willing to lose their support. So we have to make sure that we keep pushing this envelope forward and drive people who are not willing to take the next step out of office. And you know, with the election of Cori Bush, for instance, um, the re-election of Ilhan, um, all, this is a trend I think that we can build upon. And Alan, you were telling me in the car about your time on Capitol Hill and private conversations you had with Congress people. Do you want to recount that? Yeah, well, first I, I'd like to say with regard to a, a means test for foreign aid, this makes of course sense. Why in the world would the US not condition foreign aid to any country on the basis of its actions? I'm not quite sure if it were not for the influence of the Israel lobby, why we would be giving Israel $3.8 billion a year. Israel, after all, is a wealthy country. It is occupying other people's territory. It's really not in any danger from anyone. Why do we need to give it this much money? But the uh, larger question of whether our policy can be altered, I think, is the fact that American Jews are increasingly alienated from Israel. And the reason is that they once thought that Israel shared our values, but it doesn't. The majority of American Jews, almost all American Jews, believe in religious freedom, in separation of church and state. Israel has no religious freedom. There is a theocracy. The ultra-Orthodox are financed by the government. Reform rabbis, conservative rabbis, have no right to perform weddings, funerals, conversions. If a Jew and a non-Jew want to get married in Israel, they have to leave the country to do so. There is no other country I can think of in the world 
where people of different religions have to leave the country to marry, certainly not in the Western world. So slowly it is becoming clear to American Jews that their values and Israel's values are quite contradictory. And I think there is no reason why in the future in the Congress, there cannot be a review of our foreign aid toward Israel. Now it's not only people on the extreme left who would like this review. My experience in the Congress is that what people say privately about US Middle East policy and what they say publicly are radically different things. Publicly, they are afraid of the Israel lobby. They are afraid that if they criticize Israel in any way, they will be defeated in the next election as people like Paul Finlay of Illinois were. So that is something that I think we can look forward to in the future. And I, I think more and more politicians are realizing they can get reelected if, if they call for more equal um, views on the Palestinian Israel mm -hmm. issue. And I see right, uh, Grant is getting questions from the field. Yeah, right I, I, Dennis kind of put a big cinder block into our chat stream here. And, uh, you know, we, it's not like we didn't anticipate this as well, but he's, he asks, do you believe Jewish youth will become more conservative as they age? And it really is a whole, if you're not liberal at 20, you have no heart. If you're not conservative at 40, you have no brain meme. So uh, Rabbi Lynn, you want to tackle that one? Kind of well, saw this one coming. It didn't work on me. Let's put it that way. No, I, but you are, you're, you're special. <laughs> I no, actually, you know, as, as I've mentioned many times, I have been in, in a movement uh, for Palestine solidarity since 1966. I have seen growth in this movement in tremendous ways. And I don't see people becoming more conservative. Maybe they, they are becoming more involved with home life and have less, maybe less time to organize. Yeah. Um, you know, with children. And I don't think that's a shift to conservatism. It's a shift to uh, trying to maintain, maintain households. But again, I want to speak to this moment. All over the Jewish world and, and in the rest of the United States, the people are grappling with Black Lives Matter. This is going to, and, and that is in every age. And this is going to continue <clears throat> to influence um, ongoing generations, future generations. We all know that we are on a precipice. Climate chaos is here in California. Um, I have the lights turned on, the day is dark. Yesterday was a nuclear winter. There is just no world in which the realities of, and what Jeff, um, Halper has called the Palestinization of the United States. There is mm -hmm. no world in which uh, policies that were set in motion against Palestinians and which are, are in alliance with US militarism um, happening here, there is no world in which these things are not being clear, becoming clearer and clearer. You know, Jewish people have uh, some, we, I, I'm not in that much agreement about um, this sort of idea that Jews are, are religious alone. Yeah. And but let me say that our identities are somewhat flexible depending on how the, the power structure uses us. And we can, our, our positionality can shift in a white supremacist world and therefore, that, that is one of the reasons that Israel remains a threshold issue because of the lack of trust in the enormous uh, Christian hegemonic, evangelical, white supremacist, patriarchal system that we have been living under for 500 years. So I think that 
the more Jewish people recognize that our future is aligned with frontline people and the closer we can become to in, in that kind of faithful solidarity, the stronger our capacity will be to shift things. And I see that generationally. I don't see that as necessarily young versus old, but certainly younger people are moving their communities in that direction. And that's a good thing. That is All right, well, a good thing. You're yeah, you really queued us up for um, a little uh, segment we want to do now, um, and that is about, well, the leadership and who can actually claim in this extremely, you know, varied environment, all the things that you just said about uh, increasing and decreasing mm -hmm. threats. Um, so we want to take a look at mm -hmm. a, uh, an event that happened on Capitol Hill in 2017. The American Jewish Committee, the Simon Weisenthal Center, the Anti-Defamation League all testified before the House Judiciary Committee, lobbying them to adopt a definition of anti-Semitism that included criticism of Israel within their failed legislation, the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. So let's watch that clip and then if we can get some comments from both of you. You have the wall-to-wall -wall leadership of the American Jewish community here. You have the wall-to-wall -wall leadership of the American Jewish community here. We came, um, I would say, hat in hand. We have a problem. We need your help. And I think what we would uh, respectfully ask for uh, is uh, after the appropriate deliberations that uh, with all of uh, Congressman Raskin, former professor, all of these important questions that have been raised. We need to move the ball forward. We hope you'll send this to the, uh, to the floor of the House for further deliberation. I have no doubt that if it's passed, there'll be many challenges just by virtue of the testimony you heard today. But you have the entire Jewish leadership of the American Jewish community coming together united, something that apparently nothing less than this great uh, committee uh, has been able to achieve. And we really hope that after the appropriate deliberation, it'll be moved forward for a vote on the floor. Okay. So, that didn't work, but comments. We're the representatives of the entire community sitting there and uh, expressing a unified view. Well, obviously they yeah. weren't elected by anybody, right? They, nobody elected them and they wait, are- wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean the head of the ADL and the APAC <laughs> are not selected by vote from their membership organized members? That cannot be true. <laughs> See, the idea that the representatives of the Anti-Defamation League or the American Jewish Committee speak for American Jews is completely wrong. As a matter of fact, only I believe the figure I saw was 18% of American Jews belong to any of these organizations. And according to the latest poll, only 4% of American Jews say that Israel is the most important issue upon which they cast their vote. I think it was 43% who said healthcare is the most important issue. But I think the, yeah. the larger question that has to be asked within the Jewish community is what is Judaism? If the Jews are the chosen people, the question is, what are they chosen for? The American Council for Judaism has always taken the view of reform Judaism at the beginning that Jews were chosen to spread the word of God throughout the world, not to be isolated in some small place in the Middle East. This was not the purpose of religion. 
And I think that what we have seen in the official Jewish organizations is what can only be described as a form of idolatry, making Israel the object of worship rather than God. I mean, traditionally, Reformed Jews believed that God created men and women of every race and nation equally. So for Jews to believe that they were chosen for special privileges rather than special obligations violates the spirit of what I consider genuine, genuine Judaism. And I think that the majority of young people in the Jewish community would share, would share that, that view. But to the previous discussion of liberal and conservative, I don't know what those terms mean anymore. I was a conservative, active in the American conservative movement from the beginning. We believed in things like limited government and balanced budgets and a strong national defense. In Virginia, in the Republican Party, we were against segregation. It was the Democrats that supported racism and the Democrats that supported segregation. What these terms mean, I'm not sure anymore. Of course, people who call themselves conservative today have nothing to do with the people who called themselves conservative in the past. We must abandon labels like this and talk about what is morally right and what is decent and good for our society. I think we have come a long distance in America. We don't get proper credit in a way for the distance we've come. If, if you told me when I was in college that I would live long enough to see a black president, you would have said we were mad. And we've now had a black president elected twice, black secretaries of state. I'm not saying that we don't have serious racial problems in America today that we must confront, and I'm sure we will, but we've come a great distance. And I'm happy to say that the vast majority of American Jews have been on the right side of this. And let me say, say the, the first president of the American Council for Judaism was Lessing Rosenwald. Lessing Rosenwald's father was Julius Rosenwald, who together with Booker T. Washington helped to build schools for black children all over the South after the Civil War. So the idea of social justice is inherent in Judaism. And for a country like Israel to mistreat and oppress its Palestinians is in violation of the most basic Jewish moral and ethical values. Thank you. And so Rabbi Lynn, who is representing the Jewish valued leaders today, if, if it's not these um, old? Yeah, um, I, I would, I, I guess I have a little more nuanced view of Jewish history and values. Um, because uh, I think we have to look at the Jewish community participation in, in public sphere for, uh, in the last 200 years. We have to look at that context because up until then we were a minoritized people um, with a very inward looking perspective that was forced by uh, you know, land restrictions, trade, all kinds of restrictions, right? So the idea of how, what are the values that we are trying to uplift? And I believe we have to talk not so much theology because I think you'll have a problem there, but we have to talk values and human rights. In this regard, uh, human rights, we have to link human rights to the plight and situation of the most directly impacted people. And in this country, I think black people might take issue. Yes, there's been some progress, but given the incarceral rates <laughs> in this country, the number of people of black people shot dead in the street 
even during the midst of the most massive protests we have ever seen in this country. I think you might get a little bit of pushback on, on you know, ideas of progress. There's no, the, and, and how committed people are, the vast community to actually defunding their own wealth and engaging in actual reparations is a question. So I think for me, I look to the issue of reparations because once the community accepts the idea that we owe reparations to Palestinians uh, to a huge degree and we owe reparations to African-Americans and to indigenous Americans, we can begin to have this conversation of the transfer of privilege of wealth that has been um, gained by privilege. We can't talk about charity anymore. We have to talk about solidarity and there's a big difference. So the leadership in this, again, um, in my mind, is not so much in the Jewish community, but to the extent that the Jewish community follows the lead of Palestinians, of Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews, of African-Americans, indigenous Americans, to the degree that we can um, step back a little bit and reorient our organizing to support frontline people, that will be the measure of how successful we are. In that, JVP is definitely a leader. And because it has, it, it is one of the largest national Jewish organizations in the United States um, because of our views on BDS and because of our views on Zionism, we are mm -hmm. excluded from Jewish elite circles. And because we rely so heavily on, on rabbinic leadership, which is usually conservative uh, in, or, or liberal rather than being radical, this has to come from the grassroots. And in that regard, I always have close at hand Martin Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, which I think is an essential read for any Jewish person to understand the transformation one has to make from liberalism, which is good, you know, it's good, it gets, it gets some things done, to actual system transformation. Because if we don't engage systemic change of our incarceral and policing system, we are never gonna make that breakthrough in the way um, militarism is carried out in the United States. And I think the, the recent um, alliance between Israel, the US and um, the, U, the United Arab Republic is, is an example of how militarism functions. It is not Jewishness, but it is state policy that is driving this issue forward. Israel is simply, not simply, but Israel is one center of the way that the US uses, transfers arms to the Middle East through Israel, through Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt. Um, so peace is often actually a disguise for an increase in militarization and the Palestinians never benefit from these kind of peacemaking activities. They are further oppressed. Yeah, so would, would, a, would a balanced foreign policy cost candidates votes, do you think? Well, what is it? Hopefully some. <laughs> but they don't seem to want to do it, no matter what the lack of enthusiasm is. So speaking of systemic change, well, what do you think it is they're, they're going for? We yeah. are seeing some, you know, I think Ilhan. Well, I, I, I don't know about, about that, Grant. Uh, I think at this point, the Middle East will not be a major debate between Trump and Biden. There are so many other issues and problems we face. But I want to say one other thing. And that is, in Israel itself, there are many, many people who understand the mistreatment of the Palestinians and are speaking out. I just would like to tell one brief story. The correspondent of the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, Amira Haas, who lives in the West Bank, 
Her parents were Holocaust survivors. And she tells the story of her mother being sent to a concentration camp and people in the community just standing there and watching, being bystanders while evil was taking place. And mm -hmm. she has written, I don't want to be a bystander when my people are mistreating someone else in that way. That is the great evil. It is ironic, it is ironic that people who have been mistreated, like the Jews in Europe were mistreated, would then later mistreat other people. But there are many, many people in Israel itself that understand the irony of the Zeev Sternhall, the expert on fascism at the Hebrew University, has himself used the term apartheid to describe what is happening in Israel. I'm confident that once our political campaign is over and the passions of the moment are past, Israel and its policies will be carefully examined by people in both political parties because it is immoral for American money to be used to oppress people in this manner. Now, Rabbi Lynn, you were, yeah, go ahead. I'm not that confident in, in the population of Israel. If you travel to Israel and I go there somewhat frequently, not, I guess it's been three years, but you know, I've led um, over 20 delegations to Palestine and I've been doing that since 1998. And I went to school there, you know, um, high school and college. So I'm, I'm really see actually the trend moving right, not left in Israel. And although you can speak to righteous individuals who like Amira and Gideon Levy, they are a minority voice. There is no mm -hmm. doubt they are a minority voice. And yeah. that issue, uh, the issues in Israel also have to be addressed <coughs> are with racism between the Ashkenazi elite and their relationship to the Sephardic and Mizrahi communities. I think there may be, and in all of the massive demonstrations, even against Netanyahu, you rarely see mention of the Nakba, of the ongoing uh, catastrophe um, of the Palestinian people. It's, it's not, you know, it's just not the case. Um, so I think that uh, it will depend on American Jewish community shifting to a much more, um, so, to a more solidarity position with our racism here and that will inform our efforts and policy there. And we see that now in the election of more people of color to Congress. If that continues as a trend and Jewish people can get behind that, we will, that will create a shift. In the meantime, let us depend on supporting Palestinian organizations that are fighting for their lives. Um, in, in Gaza, in Gaza, in the West Bank, inside 1948, the Bedouin community, we have to focus not on Israelis as if Palestinians didn't exist, but on Palestinians themselves and listen to what they're saying and how they want us to support them. And that is through BDS. Right, so let me just throw this last question out. Tom put this into the chat at the top of the hour basically asking, so you've got all these forces you're talking about, Rabbi Lynn and Alan, they're coming together. Um, but the question for, for Tom is, how long does it take? How much longer will we be waiting for an annexation plan from the Netanyahu government back to the hilt by Trump? Has that been permanently wiped off the table or are we gonna see something come out? Best guess, best analysis. Well, I think for most Palestinians, uh, annexation is an ongoing process. And so this plan right. is yeah. formalization of something that has been ongoing. And of course, it's not a positive thing. So right. I think we should not get too confused about what this means in terms of policy at the upper level. And we, again, have to turn to Palestinians and ask them, what do you think about this? this piece and what they respond is that 
the Nakba has been ongoing. This is a formalization du jour of something right. that is already um, de facto the apartheid system of um, the Israeli state in all of its territories. It is already one state. It's an apartheid state. And so we have to end apartheid. That It's not about the annexation. It's about ending apartheid, as Peter right. uh, Bynum said. That, that is where our focus should be. Great. So Alan wants to add one more thing. And, and I'd like to add one question. What do we... What do we say to the people who say there is not a perfect candidate out there who represents me? I'm going to stay home. So that that would be my final question. But go ahead, Alan. Well, I think I think the question of apartheid of of annexation is really off the table until after the election. If if Israel does not annex this territory while Trump is in office, I don't think it will be possible. But I think that you have an administration that has made Israel a wedge issue primarily to attract Christian Zionists because the majority of Jews oppose the occupation, oppose annexation. And it's ironic that Israel has made its agreement with the United Arab Emirates and the Palestinians have been ignored. But I think, I think annexation will re-emerge if Netanyahu remains in office because that is his basic philosophy. If Trump were to be re-elected, I think annexation would proceed. His ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, supports annexation. And Miriam Adelson, the wife of Sheldon Adelson, who received the Medal of Freedom, has actually gone so far as to say another book should be added to the Bible, the book of Trump. So if Trump is reelected, I think annexation might proceed. But if Trump is not reelected, I think mm -hmm. annexation is off the table for a while. Excellent. Well, we uh, started late and it looks like we're going to end late, but uh, I think uh, unless there are some other questions, so Linda, and you're muted. So I, I think we're going to wrap this up and thank uh, Rabbi Lynn and Alan for this excellent discussion. And just to mention our next event is September 17. Um, about Zionism, Christian Zionism and the quest for justice of the Holy Land. So entirely different angle there. Uh, we'll have uh, Don Wagner discussing how until recently historical and political accounts of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have largely ignored the influence of Christian Zionism in British and US policy. So he's written a couple of books about that. He'll be talking uh, from the Balfour Declaration up to the present. And this is something that uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting session. So I'll be moderating that uh, and hopefully we'll uh, get that um, going with no snafus. And you can also sign up for that directly right down below in the YouTube description section. So if you found this enlightening, I certainly did. Uh, share the uh, links and announcements with your friends. Uh, you can certainly tell them to go to the website where we put up all these archival videos and put in the links to the new sh sessions of Extra. They're all free. They don't replace our conference, though, so make sure you check out the main conference in March 2021. We're still working toward that and have a lot of hope that we'll be able to do that. So go to IsraelLobbyCon.org and check all of that out. And Delinda, did you have anything else that uh, we just, need to cover today? Thank you so much for joining us, all of you. And um, please vote. Even if we don't have the perfect candidates, please vote. And, and, it and just it's not shows. just the candidates at the top, you know? Yes. Voting yes. is not just about the president. Our battle is in the grassroots. Vote for your count, city council members, um, for your state officials, et cetera. Get out there and vote. 
vote. Looking, looking here, here. for a perfect candidate is always hopeless, <laughs> and you have to choose between the two available ones. Yeah, that's right. Not well, just two. Just yes. vote. Everyone. Yes. Okay, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much yes. for. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Really fun. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Take care, everyone. Stay you safe too. and healthy. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Bye now. Wear a mask.